Hello, you are listening to On Resistance. We are on every Friday except for the first Friday of the month. You can tune in to our past shows on www.soundcloud.com slash on-resistance. I'm Bobby London, and today we are going to be talking about tactics. Hello, I'm Jay. Thank you for tuning in. Tactics can mean many different things from how we choose to interact, escalate, and make actions and issues more visible, how we choose to defend ourselves when attacked, from compliance to non-compliance, permitting and working with the state or not collaborating with the state and drawing firm lines in terms of non-compliance, which can range itself from civil disobedience to resistance and direct action. What can we learn about past tactics? And what can we acknowledge about tactics that are being used in regards to moving forward towards liberation and revolution and whatever? And can we have shared tactics? Does it matter what other people's tactics are if we're not necessarily having the same shared goals? It's something that I've been thinking about. Because I feel like with resistance, there's a sort of idea, you know, even saying like resistance. We're all resisting against different things. We're all perpetuating things that others may, each other may be resisting against. For me, there's a lot of frustration with co-optation of uprisings by orgs because my goal is for revolution, but what does revolution mean for me, right? I think that a lot of times tactics that are used are not necessarily towards that goal. They can actually be contrary to those goals. Even though I may not be in solidarity with the tactics that other organizations may use, I still am in solidarity with the fact that people are doing stuff, but I'm also frustrated because even because those tactics are also used against the sort of tactics that I would like to use, and they actually also prevent the escalation. Co-optation is a tactic, and co-optation is a tactic that orgs use often, and they use often of uprisings and riots. And they take a lot of tactics that are used in uprising and riots, like what we saw in Los Angeles and other places of, you know, just taking and shutting down freeways. And they take that tactic and then they use it for themselves, but they use it on a different level of purposeful civil disobedience with the idea of getting arrested. Now, the tactic of shutting down freeways is no longer just like this thing that like maybe spontaneously happens, you know, on a march because you happen to be past a freeway entrance. Now it's this planned thing with cars and chains and and felony charges. So how does that relate and interrelate to my resistance? Um, Does it have any effect at all? Does it not? Um, These are things I hope to further discuss in this conversation. I think there's a spectrum where there's organic resistance and then we see people kind of become empowered, basically a group revolt where there isn't necessarily one leader or one organization, despite most organizations' best efforts to try to immediately co-opt uprising energy. Sometimes the uprising will bring people out and it'll remain uncoopted. I think we've we've talked about this before, like three, four days People will come out in mass, and then by the third or fourth day, it'll start to become contained, and those tactics will become recuperated, and organizations will adopt them. And so, looking at just like the long-term use of the tactics uh, versus versus the goals, and I think we're seeing also youth and people become radicalized 
through being in these situations of revolt, of uprising. But then also some of those people are being recruited or or joining organizations because they're looking for structures or they're being told that structure is necessary and that the structure looks a certain way. So it kind of turns into, if there is a lull between uprisings, you know, turns into planned protests, which do keep, I understand the need to kind of keep visible and keep out there. It does change if it's an open space, you're inviting people in and it's participatory and it can be shaped by who participates in it versus it's a planned protest by an organization and the tactics taken in either space end up having different results where if an organization takes certain tactics, it ends up consolidating you know, credibility for that organization. Sometimes these tactics, they can be effective for an organization, but not necessarily effective in growing a movement. And so I think that's kind of what we're seeing in Los Angeles in terms of there's no shortage of of terrible situations and things happening in the world. There's no shortage of footage or lack of verdicts or non-prosecution of police. And every year until 2015 or so, until last year, there has been, you know, some sort of uprising. Um, the year before in 2014, it was um, in solidarity with Mike Brown. The year before that, In 2013, it was for Trayvon Martin. So last year, how can we reflect on the tactics being taken? I feel like there has been a hesitation for other efforts to kind of take confrontational tactics. Yet at the same time, there has been an upswing in revolutionary rhetoric and calling for mass rebellion and all this stuff, while at the same time appealing to city leaders and doing civil disobedience, which can happen in so many different ways. I feel like taking a street can be disobedient uh, without a permit. But then we're seeing this trend that I think I want to talk a little more about of of pre-planning our arrests. And that can be, again, like some organizations do work with the police to pre-plan their arrests and work with the media to have that arrest highlight an issue that they want to draw attention to. And then, you know, some people don't work with the police, but they're still resigned to getting arrested to bring attention to an issue. And so I I think there is more to be talked about, about the danger of like arrest and um, the difference between like if you're in an uprising and you're resisting, how the police are going to target and arrest people and how I think that does minimize the need to kind of resign yourself to getting arrested beforehand and a pre-planned action does keep the issue relevant, but sometimes also keeps the organization um, more relevant and can possibly prevent movement building to a degree. People come to associate resistance with getting arrested. And we've seen different groups take different tactics, and I think different marginalized groups have different reasons to take different tactics also. I've been thinking a lot lately of just, like, what is it going to take Like, what is it going to take to overthrow the state? And the goal is liberation, which overthrowing the state is what you would need to do for actual liberation of both our, like, individually and just, like, the planet and other beings that live on this earth. Then how are our tactics working towards that? With civil disobedience and uprisings, the tactics end up kind of just creating... We're still stuck in awareness, right? We're still trying to build awareness. Um, We're trying to wake up people or motivate the masses and all this other stuff. People have been using these same tactics forever, and and they haven't reached us to that goal. They haven't reached us um, too far. I mean, we're more comfortable in our oppression, but we're still being oppressed. 
in terms of in L.A., like, yeah, you know, Kanye says no parties in L.A. Um, well, there's been no riots in L.A. Why is that? And I feel a lot it has to deal with L.A. culture in the sense of Hollywood and how much, you know, how phony our politicians are, how phony the organizations are and the activist culture here is, how phony the police are. You know, you look at Commander Smith and what's his role? His role is for when he talks about um, some cop killed someone or explaining how he believes that protesters have the right to protest, he's supposed to look like the nice, white, friendly guy, you know, who's not threatening and He's more of an actor than he is a police officer. The LAPD is really, really good on PR, and Garcetti's really, really good at PR. Everyone in Ferguson was uprising to respond to Michael Brown, and then so when Azel Ford was killed the next day and we didn't see anything, you know, you have to wonder, like, what's going on? What's going on in L.A. where, you know, we have the largest amount of homeless population? We have homeless people, like, dying because they don't have anywhere to sleep in like freezing cold weather, but we have all these empty, expensive luxury apartment buildings. Why isn't LA sort of reacting to these atrocities that are happening to us in the same way that we're seeing in other places? And I think also it has a lot to do with geography and it also has to do with gentrification, the fact that people are being pushed out of the city. And I think that's one of the city's tactics of fighting resistance is gentrification because you're getting pushed out to the 909 or, you know, you're getting pushed out to Palmdale and you can't commute to L.A. If you're resisting in Palmdale and 909, you're resisting against the KKK and all these white supremacists that are located in these areas. When uprisings happen and when people spontaneously take the streets and shut down freeways. And for me, it's always excites me because I hope it will escalate. I hope it will continue and that more will happen. And then I think that with constant disruption that we do disrupt the capital and we do disrupt the state as business as usual. And I think that's important, but it never gets to get that far because, you know, the co-optation of these orgs end up happening. Are we in... There is a lot to say about Los Angeles having its own flavor I hate to bring this up, but during the Occupy movement, Los Angeles and Oakland fought back a lot against reformism, you know, under the context of the OWS movement being, you know, kind of the thought project of some white middle class anarchists. There was always kind of a a wondering why our tactics were so limited here, because anytime anyone tried to do a bank march or just do something spontaneous because the energy of the people was there and we wanted to do something, we wanted to be more confrontational, there were always at least five orgs there to be like, hey, no, you can't do this. We already have an action planned. It's pre-planned. Here's your sign. Here's the speaker that we have. All eyes forward. And it really dulls the creativity of each of our own autonomous resistance and how that can come together and create new dynamics, different experiences collectively. Whereas Oakland has a long fought practice of taking streets. In Los Angeles, there is a huge culture of pacification and peace policing. And I don't think that's completely separate from the media that we have here in terms of branding of movements, like Bobby was saying, and also the glamorization of resistance and like kind of the appropriation, which we've talked about before, of resistance culture in the media. And also the focus on on peaceful civil disobedience being the most effective way. What that does to me, you know, is that I witness people around me. It's not necessarily for me. I do get frustrated, but I witness the people around me kind of 
just fall in line. And it's like this leadership model that protest and CD kind of carries with it of decision making and kind of precludes and like limits the potential to grow, um, become more confrontational, to take different tactics that we're not already socialized to take under this hierarchy, which is petitioning or using aggressive tactics, but the goal is not in line with the tactics that you're using. So just kind of like bringing up the co-optation of the media, in some cases when protests or arrests is happening, is glamorizing protests and how you're engaged in resistance and uprisings. Most people will tell you, you know, you're worried about getting arrested. You know, you don't have to plan the arrest. Like the state, as you participate and start to realize your own autonomy, the state gathers intelligence on you and that can happen regardless of whether you're arrested. The amount of trust that I think is resigned over to organizations to choose the tactics for us versus having this kind of difficult, more nuanced conversation about about tactics that we choose, about compliance, about non-compliance. For example, there was a 400-person metro meeting when the metro fee was being raised. You know, everyone went and they had such good ideas and they gave all these ideas over to the metro board and lo and behold, the Prince Mayor Garcetti was there and, you know, people thought that if they really appealed to him, um, and like I think the quote was, it was a Maoist quote, and someone said, he's either ice or rock. And so we appealed to him, if he's ice, he'll melt. And they thought he was ice, but then they found out he was rock, you know, and by, you can't appeal to a rock, it's not going to melt. Just the smallest noncompliance, one of our comrades spoke a little bit over time, got harassed and got arrested. And even though we kind of tried to prevent that through various means, they still got arrested. That wasn't pre-planned. Like stuff like that happens, you know, if you resist and especially if you don't have an organization that has your back. If you resist, um, the state has tactics that the state uses to track you. And arrest is one of those tactics that the state uses. So for us to also use that tactic, I think we have to think about there are ways to resist and to create protests and to create even public spectacles and to get media attention and then to leave, you know, to leave right before the arrest happens. Or or if you are holding a space, how are you going to defend that space? And, you know, in terms of symbolism, like what is the goal of holding that space and of that arrest? The thing that was frustrating was the fact that supposedly these radical people, bus riders union, didn't do anything. They didn't do anything. They didn't intervene. They didn't, like, have solidarity. Actually, no, they were shaming us. While sheriffs and riot gear started to come into where the meeting was being held, there was no solidarity, knowing that them as an institution had more power to um, try to force protection because they're the bus riders union. And they did nothing. If anything, they shamed. They still continued to go on with the meeting and play in the charade. And that's the problem with these like unions and these organizations is they're participating in the charade. It's just like a process to this. When people are getting paid for organizing, like they're a part of the institution. They're a part of the system. And to me, that also goes into the idea of leading the masses and knowing what's better for the masses and how that sort of hierarchical thinking that, you know, you need to be led, you need to be told what to do, or that the hood needs to be organized, you know, as if like the hood doesn't know because they're on a day to day living with these things. They don't need you to come into their community and tell them how to resist. They know how to resist because they have to do it every day. Or if they didn't know how to resist, then they'd be dead. It's kind of like really 
condescending for people to have these sort of like ideas and like hierarchical way of looking but like hierarchical way and also just very like elitist way of looking at people and classes really I also wanted to mention about why I personally just don't think arrest tactics work is because I saw my friends have to go through the court system and I saw what that did during Occupy when everyone did the arrest for raid night they ended up just like bogged down in the courts and a lot of people left. A lot of people that were excited about resistance were then not excited about it because it's the arrest that's one thing. And then it's like the two years after that is really kind of like sucks you out. And then your community is then doing court support. And then you're trying to raise money for like bail fund and for lawyers and all that stuff. So so much energy that takes out of from us being in the streets and then into the hands of the state that also plays into them and works for a tactic that benefits them. Speaking of Occupy, I was thinking of also how the tactic of the fact that we don't talk about Occupy, they successfully created a narrative where it's like Occupy was a failure. You are ashamed for being a part of Occupy. You should keep your head down for being a part of Occupy. And not realizing that Occupy and the movements that are going on now are connected. Same as like what happened in May Day in 2006 in MacArthur Park is connected to Occupy. And like, you know, LA riots is connected to that. And we are all building off each other and connected to each other. And sometimes we are the same people. So it's really important that we have more conversations about Occupy and that aren't just being facilitated by white people um, and like the white people who participate in Occupy because there was a lot that came out of it. And there was a lot that like, I think Occupy backfired on them. I think their tactic actually, like sure there was like the bad and you know, all these horrible things that happened, but there was so much that we learned about the state. They kind of exposed themselves and also like taught us how to deal with these things. You know, how to deal with COINTELPRO and how to deal with um, co-optation, how to deal with um, suppression and the depression that comes from the suppression. It's important for us also to acknowledge the state's tactics and how sometimes we play into them and how sometimes orgs being working with the institutions of the state also perpetuate that and also use state tactics to sort of diminish anti-authoritarian and horizontal ideas because those are also against organizations who are hierarchical, who are actually practice a lot of authoritarian, who replicate the same things that supposedly they're supposed to be against in a more micro way. I feel like these organizations even use horizontalism and anti-authoritarianism as a tactic while not actually being structured that way. Like they will use the rhetoric of horizontal participation but still have like a very firm decision-making structure that isn't inclusive of people that are participating in their actions. Who's deciding what actions you take? If it's consistently not you, if you aren't actually participating in deciding what actions you take, I feel like there's a disconnect there. Because to me, resistance is about empowering people. And that's what, you know, direct action and being in these spaces that are not controlled by any one person or group that's the potential in those spaces for revolutionary energy, for collective action, is in learning how to work and struggle together in the street to hold space, to not be dispersed. It's very much not symbolic. It's very much moment of, very intense, very necessary. And I think that resistance is a practice. And so, you know, the more that you're in those spaces, if you can be, because not everybody can be, you know, you learn things different different times. And sure, we can have workshops and we can try to replicate some of these discussions, but it's not the same as like being in a space that allows you to participate how you how you desire and to be exposed to other decisions and creativity that isn't found in preplanned 
spaces. And I feel like that energy is why co-optation happens because orgs are attracted to that energy. And in the in the process of being attracted to that energy, tend to kind of capture it and neutralize it. But in the meantime, you know, while we're trying to wait for slash support slash agitate for uprising, none of these orgs that do have resources are worrying or thinking about how to best support the uprising versus to co-op the uprising in terms of like, you know, people who do get arrested during uprisings and then don't have any support. I know that people did do um, jail solidarity after the Mike Brown arrest. There were 400 arrests in Los Angeles and the end of 2014. And at that time, we had kind of talked about an uprising support network, but just how like the tactics taken by groups don't really follow through to how they interact with the movement as a whole and end up kind of consolidating power for yourself. Um, or that's the danger. At one point in time, I did participate in civil disobedience. And, you know, I just want to talk about the word civil and like it implies peaceful, it implies passive. And I know people say that you can be disobedient and it's not passive, especially when the opposite happens, when you're in a situation where no one wants to be arrested. There's not a large enough crowd to take any other tactics that might prevent that. And then I've seen things happen where we were doing a solidarity action with the Zapatistas in Pasadena. We had a Facebook event, simple Facebook event, and the LAPD flagged it. It was a movie screening outside of Vicente Fox, the ex-president of Mexico's speaking event in Pasadena. You know, LAPD flagged it as a counterterrorism threat and um, notified the Pasadena police, which were super aggressive with us, came up to us, got in our face, told us to stand across the street. We complied, told us not to use a megaphone. We complied, still attacked us, arrested five people, basically raided us, police and riot gear. The same people who practice civil disobedience and get have pre-planned arrests and use that to build their campaigns in their organizations are the same people telling us that because there were arrests at our event, you know, it wasn't well planned or it was our fault. You know, they're shaming and victim blaming us for being attacked by police because we did not pre-plan an arrest. And so this isn't universal, but these are trends where we see people who do use these tactics of pre-planning arrests turn around and do the same thing where they're pacifying or peace policing people during uprisings, saying, we don't want you to get arrested. We don't want this to happen. And it's just like, you know, it's about context and not using the tactic, but then shaming people who, who aren't purposely using the tactic who get attacked. Which is a tactic of organizations to prevent people who are like autonomous and individual who aren't a part of orgs from calling for actions. And then that reminds me of when when we had the action during the week of uprisings for Michael Brown and how different we got treated versus like Black Lives Matter LA who had action during the same time. We were met with one of the most aggressive police presence I've ever experienced from right off from the bat. Um, we had cameras in our face. They pretty much were kettling us from being able to do anything, and they kind of stayed with us the whole entire way. And in the end, they ended up kettling the majority of us and holding us there for a long time. And there had to be at least like three to 500 cops in riot gear there for us. And it was just interesting how, how they used a different tactic for our march versus the ones who is having different action in Beverly Hills. And then also makes me think of just 
how for the Michael Brown uprising, one of the days when we were marching in downtown LA and we were in the heart of the beast, like, you know, by all the little bougie restaurants and stuff. And people started banging on one of these bougie restaurant windows. And it easily felt like it could have turned into a property destruction march. And then it, these people started to basically peace police and stop them. And it was these random people who were leading the march. I'm very, like, sure they were on payroll. And it, that goes back into how gentrification works against us for uprisings. Because a lot of people who were on that march weren't people who were familiar with the community. And weren't familiar when they had people leading them into one-way streets or into dark alleys or into places where it would be easy for them to get kettled by police. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't know the area. Knowing your landscape is always going to be a tactic that is going to be beneficial and so that's why I th- I'm always uncomfortable with going to places that I don't know the area, I don't know the community, because if I need to be able to run, I want to know where I can run to. At this point forward, I don't know, whenever I go to a protest or, or any type of resistance action, I'm always like, is this going to get real or is this going to be spectacular? Like, is this going to be... Because there was a march that um, Word organized, Women Organized to Resist and Defend. I think it's a spinoff of Answer. I just have such a hard time going to some of these things because they're so demoralizing to me because we're talking about this issue and this issue is real and we're, you know, speaking about it and people take different turns speaking about their org and their struggle um, and completely ignoring the police. Like, there's there's this tactic of it acting like the police aren't there, and then that will decrease conflict. To me, like, the police being present is already a conflict um, because it's only a matter of time until they escalate, until they target someone. And if the people that are organizing the action are taking tactics where they don't want to be confrontational with the police, that means you're on your own if the police target you. And so I've just seen that happen so many times where you go to something and that march was in my opinion, partially facilitated by the police. You had the police marching alongside on either side of the march, and they would march up, and then they would post up in front of businesses. And then people were coming out of these businesses, and then there's, like, armed cops just, like, standing guard there. Like, it's always fascism. I was, I don't want to say panicking, but I was having a hard time concentrating on anything else. And that's probably because I've witnessed a lot of people be attacked by police, but it's also because... To me, it's very jarring that you would organize a protest and people would be surrounded by cops and then you would pretend like they're not there. To me, like, that was psychologically very difficult for me. And I remember telling my friend, I'm like, this is fascism. Like, the police are marching with us. You know, they're, like, posting up on the sides of the street and then waiting for us to pass and then marching. And then and the police were marching, you know. It's just very, very odd and just feeling like that's a tactic the police are using. That's a tactic that the organizers are ignoring, are, are normalizing, in my opinion. If we're not calling attention to it as a problem, you know, we're normalizing it. And I think disobedience in all its forms is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show solidarity for that, but I'm also going to ask what the long-term goals are and is this actually inhibiting other people from participating? Because it's great, you know, if like you're in a group that is empowered that can take these actions but resistance is is not just one group it's a series of groups a series of people feeling empowered trying things they haven't tried before and just kind of getting away from if we do plan for something the word planning you know is very specific still giving the space at the action or at the event for it to take on its own energy 
and for people to take on their own energy. And if you do have the social capital of an org or of a brand or of a movement, even more so, like letting that organic resistance take place and not controlling the space, I think is important. It'd be nice to see some of these tactics used together. I know we've seen a lot of like barricading of freeways and bridges and just how those can be used. Also with the tactic of using the small group of people wanting to take that tactic along with working with other people to sort of create and enforce an actual blockade and, and sort of like use that as a distraction for the police while others do other things. The thing I miss about the time of Occupy and After was that there was so much going on, like even with the co-opting, even with the orgs and all that stuff, there was still, there was just stuff happening. I feel like there's nothing really happening. I don't feel like there's anywhere for me to plug in to. And I also don't feel comfortable calling for stuff myself as an individual. I don't know. I am grappling with the idea of talking about and critiquing tactics while I'm not necessarily currently in the street. And there isn't a lot happening specifically in Los Angeles, and there should be stuff happening. And I think that, you know, we've seen a lot of just BLM doing things, and that's great for them. But as a larger movement beyond that, I think it's important that we all feel empowered to also do things. And the goal is to live to fight another day. So let's let's shut stuff down and and then go back tomorrow and shut it down. Just like a side point, like when that action happened that we kind of called for after the Mike Brown uprising, the reason why that happened was because we could feel the containment happening. Sure enough, that day, many, many pre-planned things were called and the repression from the police um, against our march, because it was kind of like an assembly where we talked about containment and cooptation and about like tactics and marching and stuff like that and try to decentralize that knowledge a little bit. But the repression didn't just come from the police. It did come from people on the Facebook page asking like, do you have a right to even call for this? And just that narrative that exists, you know, just want to put name to that narrative that exists. And then I wanted to read this thing and like we can talk about it or if I wrote this a while ago, so I don't really know how I feel about it, but it kind of outlines the way I think about direct action versus the way I feel about civil disobedience, um, having been in court and and done symbolic arrests to keep the movement relevant and to get media attention. Now, now how I feel basically where, you know, media attention is never good enough <laughs> to get arrested. That's how I feel. So direct action because you can create spaces that undermine capital and value systems like property, and people are also exposed to alternative means of interaction, and we can grow to cultivate resistance. Civil disobedience is often now creating a symbolic experience for people to appeal to media for to mediate demands. Direct action can risk arrest. Civil disobedience, as practiced now, especially through the nonprofit industry, preplans arrest. Direct action can achieve goals determined by a group to fulfill a creative need or to explore ways of undermining systems of power while building autonomy from the state. Civil disobedience expects people to behave a particular way in order for an outside power to intervene and mediate demands or and often subtly reinforces reliance on the state to intervene. 
Direct action gets the goods, undermines commerce, and holds our ground regardless of laws. Civil disobedience upholds a moral exception to particular laws. And this is just something I wrote because I was trying to flesh out like how I felt and whether they are two different things, practices. My intention when I wrote it was not to put it as like a binary, but to just kind of work through the ideas of the methods we take and the tactics we take. Thanks for listening to On Resistance. Um, for this full show, you can catch it on www.soundcloud.com on Dash Resistance.